Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Macharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here on WERA 96.7 FM. Today, I'm speaking with David McCourt. David is an Irish-American entrepreneur with experience in telecom and cable television industries. He grew up in Watertown, Massachusetts, and he's a graduate of Georgetown University. Thanks so much for joining me today, David. George, it's a pleasure to be on. Please tell me about this book that you've just launched. It's called Total Rethink, Why Entrepreneurs Should Act Like Revolutionaries. Why do you think founders should approach their startup concept as a revolutionary? Well, George, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, there's been a power shift over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, whereas traditionally all the power came from the top, business and government and society sort of followed along uh, with the rules that were set by businesses and government. In both of those, big business and government have been doing a lousy job and the advent of the internet and social media. All those things together have created a power shift where the power is not coming from the top anymore, but it's actually coming from the bottom. And because you can, you can organize around an idea or a thought at scale now because of social media. So there's new holders of power that are getting very organized, and the old holders of power are getting more and more disorganized. So that, that's sort of at 50,000 feet what's going on. And at the same time, the world is moving so fast that you, you can't operate with incremental change or in, incremental improvements. Technology doesn't, not only doesn't, doesn't uh, reward incremental change. It doesn't allow incremental change. You've got to totally rip up the model and start all, start all over. And it's just because it's, it's, it's going so fast. I mean, if you think about, George, if you think about telecom, from the time I started in the business to today, however you want to measure it, speed, bandwidth, storage, memory, however you want to measure telecom, it's gone up by a factor of about a million. So you look at other industries, transportation, say, they've gone up in improvements in scale by about a factor of about four. So during that same time frame, your car gets about four times as many miles per gallon. It's about four times as safe. It's about four times as efficient. So no matter how you want to measure transportation, getting a product from A to B, it's about four times as efficient getting it there, dollar per pound, dollar per crate to move it, move it about four times as cheap. But Telcom has gone up by a factor of a million. And it's probably going to grow by another thousand on top of that over the next 10 years. And then another thousand on top of that over the next 10 years after that. So when things are moving this fast, you can't, it's not going to reward you incremental change. And, and, and George, since the Industrial Revolution up through Jack Welsh's tenure at, at GE, everything was all about incremental change. And we had buzzwords for it, like Six Sigma and another turn of inventory and another point of EBITDA. But now, 
none of that works. You just have to rip up the model and be very revolutionary in the way you approach it. And that's why uh, I, I say in the book that entrepreneurs should act like revolutionaries. Now, you believe that entrepreneurial thinkers can be found everywhere, from every walk of life. But maybe you could address this question. Do you think entrepreneurship is something that you're born with, or is it something that can be taught? Well, I'm, I'm not sure it, it, it can yet be found in every walk of life, but my hope is that it will be found in every walk of life. Um, I don't think it can be taught, but I think there are things that you can teach people so that the DNA of entrepreneurship, the DNA of being more revolutionary, the DNA of being more creative will come out. Like, for instance, you can teach people pattern recognition. Very, very important for an entrepreneur to be able to recognize patterns. You can teach people communication skills. Very, very important for an entrepreneur. You can teach people confidence. Very important for an entrepreneur. You can teach people uh, not to be uh, um, afraid to fail, and when they do, to have the courage to pick themselves up. You can teach people to find a mentor, find someone to help you and to guide you. You can teach people the process of how do they go about thinking about what is their real dream and what is their real desire in life. You can give people the confidence to live an extraordinary life instead of an ordinary life. So all those things you can do, George. You 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 can give people this this is a skill that you can in, 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 uh, instill in people. To double down on your strengths and to get your weaknesses, everywhere in the academic system, they keep on telling you, work on your weaknesses, work on your weaknesses. In the sports world, if you can hit a ball or kick a ball better than anybody else in the playground when you're three or four, they tell you to double down on that because you could be a great athlete. Everywhere else, they it sort of ignore your... Uh, or not, not ignore your strengths, but focus. Keep on telling you to focus on your weaknesses. You, your weaknesses can only be improved incrementally. Your strengths can be improved indefinitely, infinitely rather. You can increase your strengths infinitely. But So those are the type of things that can be taught in school, can be taught in entrepreneurship programs. But I don't think the actual concept of being an entrepreneur is something that can be taught. That make, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. So now you have a really interesting story because, as we mentioned before, you came from telecom, but you also ventured into entertainment production, TV and film. Uh, what's interesting to me is that at first glance, it's kind of hard to link winning an Emmy for the series Reading Rainbow to being the CEO and chairman of the RCN Corporation. So how did you find your path as an entrepreneur? And how did you find opportunities in those very different areas? You just pursue your dreams. You just figure out, you put yourself in the future and you look back instead of standing in the present, look forward. You try to envision what you want in a a day or a week or a month or a year or a lifetime. And you say to yourself, this is what I would like my life to look like and you paint a picture of it in your mind, and you stand in that spot, and this is what I think the world's going to look like a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, and you're standing in that spot, and then you build a roadmap to get you to where you already are. 
So as opposed to standing in the present and looking in the future, which is daunting. I mean, all the problems that you're going to run into, it, it's, it's a very daunting task to do it that way. But if you put yourself already in the future and turn around and look backwards, it's much easier to build a roadmap to where you already are. And although those are different things, running a public company, uh, a startup, buying a company and running it, starting up a company, producing content. You know, I brought Michael Douglas to Sierra Leone. We did a, a documentary on children soldiers in Sierra Leone. I did a... Um, documentary with Angelina Jolie on refugees in Tanzania. I did one on AIDS in the Caribbean with Danny Glover. I did one with uh, Sonia Braga on lack of girls' education in India. I did one with Meg Ryan. So I, I, I've done a lot of TV content as well because I love it. And, and, and it's my passion. And in my mind, in the world I live in, I can run a telecom company and run a media company. And they, they are two different skill sets. But two things that I love and two things that, that are, I'm passionate about. So I know you're a graduate of Georgetown University, and of course the show focuses on founders from the Washington, D.C. area. Was there anything in your education at Georgetown that helped you as an entrepreneur? Um, I, don't know, I don't know that it, if, if Georgetown, um, there were people in Georgetown that helped me. There was uh, Father Chris Johnson, um, who uh, taught me about pa- having a positive attitude. So there were, there were specific people, um, professors and teachers, um, uh, Father McSorley, um, uh, that, that those people, uh, both unfortunately, which have, have passed away, that taught me certain things that were necessary to be an entrepreneur. But I, I don't know if judge on the institution was responsible for it, all, all those individual people. And an entrepreneur that's listening now can find people anywhere in any, in any institution that can help them. And I was lucky that I had a, a mother that, that, and a father that um, supported my curiosity and, and my optimism. And, and I think, and, and those things I'm not sure you can teach not sure you can teach curiosity and optimism uh, but 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 you need somebody that's going to be a mentor to you and keep and, and keep you um, keep you on the the straight and narrow uh, uh, let you know that you can do it support you and pick you up when you fall now I want to go back to something you said earlier uh, you mentioned that there is this power shift that's happening. Can you just give me in more detail what this power shift is and how it's going to create opportunities for entrepreneurs that are looking to innovate? The opportunities are created um, because of two things. One is the power shift, which is, again, when I say the bottom, I mean not the 2% that traditionally was at the top and traditionally set all the rules for civilized society, but instead uh, young people environment environmentalists women the lbgt community uh, men and women of color uh, disabled people uh, people with learning disabilities all these people that represent society and mankind that that, that what i just listed when you add them all up it's sort of like 98 percent and then there's this two percent at the top that's in 
big business and in government that were setting the rules, but they weren't doing a good job. And technology allowed the people below that to communicate at scale and allowed them to organize around a thought or a mission or a goal or an idea. And they've gotten energized and organized. And companies today, if they don't embrace all those people I just talked about, if they don't in- embrace inclusion, collaboration, and empowerment, they're going to end up with lousy employees. They're going to end up with lousy shareholders. They're going to end up with lousy customers. Because good, young people don't want to work for a company that doesn't embrace those things. Good shareholders don't want to invest in companies that don't embrace those things. Good consumers don't want to support companies that don't embrace those things. So you're going to end up with lousy you know, employees, lousy shareholders, and lousy customers, and that business, therefore, won't be able to survive. So that that's sort of a a comment about where the power is going, who holds it, uh, how they how they use it, how they manipulate it, how they share it. But at the same time, there's a technology revolution that's that's brewing, that's bigger than the last one. So the last one was Internet 1.0 and Internet 2.0. Internet 1.0, simple packet switching. You're from Washington, you know, right over the Key Bridge, uh, DARPA was set up and, and two guys, Vince Cerf and, and Robert Kahn, invented the internet sometime around 1970. And that was all around packet switching, just a more efficient way to move packets of information. Then internet 2.0 came along and that's a, about machi- machines and consumers interacting with each other at scale. So that's uh, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. That's an individual consumer at scale communicating with a machine. And that, of course, those two things together created the the telecom revolution. Now, there's a new telecom revolution that's going to happen very, very soon, which is Internet 3.0, which is when machines are communicating with other machines at the consumer level, at scale. Now, there's some things that have to happen. There's a digital object interface protocol that has to happen. There's data portability that has to happen. So there's a few things that that around uh, protocols and rules and regulations that need to happen, just like they did in the prior telecom revolution. But when this one happens, it's going to create the world's largest opportunity and the world's largest challenges. From an educational standpoint, hugely challenging. How do we replace all the displaced jobs? How do we train people when our whole educational system is geared around training people what what, what you and I already know? We're supposed to teach our kids what you and I have learned in life. The school system teaches what they have learned to the next generation. But when AI and machine learning take over, the machines are going to be thinking faster than, than humans. So what is it we're supposed to be teaching people? Well, we're going to have to teach people to embrace their dream. We're going to have to teach people to think different. We're going to have to teach people 
all the softer things that we've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes, because those are things machines can't do, and those are things machines aren't that good at doing, and those are things that humans are very good at doing, but our educational system, from the best I can observe, hasn't been changing with the times. It takes seven years to go from, from one version of a, of, a, of a textbook to another, on average. So it's, it's, it's still moving pretty slow. In machine, machine learning, AI, these issues that I've talked about that we need to solve around uh, the digital object uh, interface protocol and, and rules and protocols around how machines talk to each other, those things are moving pretty fast and they will get solved here in the next few years and Internet 3.0 will be so much more disruptive than what we've seen. So in essence, what you're really trying to suggest here is that we do a, a return to and total rethink about how the world has developed in the last 10 years where we're at now. I mean, think about government for a minute. Think about all the institutions that were put in place uh, on the, in the shadows of World War II, the UN, the European Union, the Electoral College, the World Trade Organization. I mean, it, 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 GATT was put, put in place in 47 and eventually turned into the World Trade Organization. Um, regulatory bodies, uh, educational bodies. All these groups were, were put in place at a different time and place. And the world is very different right now. I mean, you, you know, every time you pick up the paper this, this week, you hear about weaponizing of, tra of tariffs, and you hear about, which hugely messes up the supply chain for an entrepreneur. If, you, if you're launching a business and you, you're trying to build a supply chain and the rules keep on changing, that's hugely disrupting to you. But if the World Trade Organization was doing what it's supposed to do, we wouldn't we wouldn't have that because trade would be would be balanced in one way or another. It would either be free trade or it'd be balanced trade, but there'd be a you wouldn't be able to weaponize uh, uh, tariffs. But of course, there's 160 members and they all have to agree to make a decision, which tells you all you need to know about how slow decisions are going to be made. Everybody has to agree. So you mentioned a number of different global trends that are going to affect how the economy looks in the next decade to you know 30 or 40 years. Can you just talk to me about what you think the future of tech looks like? Now, you briefly touched upon automation and machine learning and AI. Is that going to be a net gain or positive for people? Or are you going to find that people are automated out of jobs and that the revolution is going to be people revolting against the system because it's falling apart. Well, that, that, that that's a excellent, excellent question. So if we focus on retraining, if we focus on um, how we're going to um, get real, how we're going to train people in what machines are not good at, if we do those things, it's a net gain. If we don't do those things, it's just a huge loss. Because the amount of people that will be taken out of the workforce will be will be huge. The U.S. is is uh, you know wants to produce 25 million jobs over the, the next 10 years. That's what they that's what they said two years ago, and they're on track, assuming nothing changes, to do that. But everything is going to change. Uh, so therefore, there's no way to predict whether that's true or not. 
and for sure there's the displaced jobs. For sure there's retraining that needs to be done. Um, it, it, Judge, you're talking about a world in which books can read books. You're talking about a world uh, where machines are talking to machines at scale in a millionth of a second to communicate among, among each other. It's a really, really uh, different world than the one we live in now. And we have to change our educational system to say, we have to first make sure everybody has connectivity and there's no digital divide. Everybody should have connectivity. So there is, and that's good for the environment. You know, people can work from home. That's good for congestion and roads and it, it's, it's good for the economy. If, if we don't have all that wasted labor commuting, but they can't do that unless there's real scale connectivity at home and in rural environments. And um, we have to figure out how to be good at the things that machines aren't good at. And there are some things that machines aren't good at. And we have to be good at those things. And we have to figure out what they are. And I don't see a lot of people around education spending time on that. I see them spending time on short-term solutions, short-term um, uh, initiatives for short-term gains, not for long-term gains. What's the best advice you've ever received, and what's the worst? Yeah, um, I think the, 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 the best advice I've ever got um, would, would I'd, I'd probably have to say was from my mother, which was, no matter what happens in your life, remember someone has it worse. Try as hard as it as it seems to always accept what's happened, put one foot in front of the other, and move forward. Never backwards, always forward. So that's probably the understanding that other people have it worse, not complaining, and always move forward is probably the best advice. Worst advice I ever got was when we had a company that um, um, someone offered to to buy for a telecom company uh, for about six billion dollars, and and uh, uh, two bankers had, had suggested to me that I I sell a third of it, um, and we'll sell the other two thirds later at a higher price. And uh, we sold a third, and we, we we used that money. We didn't take any money off the table. We used all that money to build more network. And then the dark com crash happened, uh, and of course, um, all that value went away. So we we my instinct told me it was a good time to sell, and, and I didn't, and I should have. My fault. Not 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 the persons who gave me the advice's fault. My fault. But it happened. So the Irish Times called you the billionaire that you've never heard of. Um, David, since you've had such success financially as well as with making deals, do you think that being a billionaire has fundamentally changed you in any way? No, um, no. I, I think I think that um, I work harder than I've ever worked in my life. Um, I travel for more business opportunities uh, than I ever have in my life. Um, I'm just as passionate as I ever was. Um, and I don't think people who are passionate about whatever they do, whether they're painters or sculptors or whether they write music or write poetry or 
uh, carve wood or build furniture. Whatever they do, if people are passionate about what they do, um, they change very little other than they get older. We all get older as we as we move along, but they don't really. If someone's really passionate about something, they're passionate to the day they die. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs out there? Persistence, attitude, gratitude, always forward. You know, the, the keep on asking questions. Stay curious, stay optimistic. Well, David, I hope it's a good book tour for you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Judge. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dc-entrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.